The scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, when I, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and, had, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he comes, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. Past um, four or five weeks, we have uh, traced God's covenant through the Old Testament. And one thing that we've uh, kind of established with God's covenant is that a covenant's a relationship. It's a relationship between uh, a more powerful party, uh, a suzerain, kind of an ancient Near East uh, terminology, who would all, just another name for a king, and a weaker party, a vassal, um, his subjects. And God entered into this covenant um, with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses. And what we saw is that this covenant he entered into them with is one covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And we have watched as this covenant has unfolded throughout all of Scripture and redemptive history until we get today with David. And what we're going to see today is that this idea that a covenant is a relationship. 
But relationships are always built on something, right? On trust and on certainty. And what we're going to see through God's covenant with David is that it gives us certainty for all of our lives. And I don't don't know if you're like me. um, I really like certainty. Like, I like to be certain in things. I like to know where I stand with people. I like to know uh, where I am standing uh, vocationally. I like to know and be certain of what my purpose in life is and what my trajectory is. I like to be certain of things. Maybe it's a control thing for me, a security thing. I don't know, but I, I like that. But I was thinking, um, when I was growing up, one of the most uncertain uh, times in my life um, was actually when I was playing soccer. So I'm going to do a little bit of a sports illustration, so I apologize for that. The principle remains for all of us, though, so stick with me. Um, I, when I was a uh, sophomore in high school, I was playing uh, for our public high school. It was like a 4,000-person high school in South Carolina, and we were playing at the highest level of soccer, but I was captain of the JV team, right? And uh, at the end of my sophomore year, me and my other couple captains got pulled up to the varsity team for the playoffs, right? They wanted to give us experience for the next year, so we get pulled up. And they were so good that they were blowing teams out, and they actually allowed us to get some playing time. And so I was like a 15-year-old kid uh, running around with these 17 and 18-year-old kids in the playoffs of high school soccer, and I was terrified, Like, truly, like, I was terrified. I felt too slow, too small, not good enough. Um, I was super uncertain. Luckily, uh, as they got further in the playoffs, we didn't play anymore. Uh, (laughs) Just the actual varsity starters and people played. And um, that next year, so spring, I played club again. And then um, for the spring, uh, for the fall, high school soccer was starting again. Now I was a junior. I had grown five or six inches that year. And... I was an upperclassman. It was my time. And I'll never forget, uh, I started school that year, and I was like, I'm not ready. I was like, I can't do it. It was like nine months ago that these same level guys were running circles around me. I can't do it. I was uncertain of my ability. And so you know what I did? I didn't play. It had been the first time in a decade that I hadn't played year-round soccer. I took that semester off. I said, I'm not going to play. I was so uncertain that I quit. And, I mean, I I thought the coach was kind of a jerk, so there's that. Um, And, you know, uh, I think about that often, because I think I move through the world that way a good bit. I let my certainty and my standing in my life who I am dictate how I act or how I feel. If I'm uncertain of something, I get out. I shut down. There's something in this feeling of uncertainty that creates such anxiety and stress in me that I run from it. What does that feeling do to you? I think this is why this sermon series is so important to me. Um, This idea of the covenant is so freeing for me. Is because we have looked at this relationship with God and man through the, the past five weeks. And um, if it's taught me one thing, if there's one thing that it's reminded me of, is that I can be certain of God. 
In a life of uncertainty, of grasping at meaning, at struggling with family relationships, friends, jobs, where the next paycheck is going to come from. Am I going to get a job? Is this person going to like me? Is my marriage going to make it? In all of that swirling uncertainty, we can hold fast to the God who has proven himself to be consistent, to move towards us in grace and in love. If God's covenant of grace is the through line of Scripture, it's also the, 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 the through line of history. Uh, we can look back both in our lives but also in the history of the world and see God's movement towards his people and be certain of his goodness and his love. And this gives me peace um, because no matter how uncertain I am about my standing with others, I can be certain of my standing before God. When I'm uncertain about who I am, I can be certain of who God is says I am. When I'm uncertain about what I've done, I can be certain about what God's done in my stead. And when I'm uncertain about whether there's any goodness left in this world, I can be certain of God's goodness. When I question whether or not I'm worthy of his love, I can look at the scriptures and I can be reminded of God's deep love for me. I think this is what God's covenant of grace gives us. And it gives us certainty in life. Full of uncertainty. And we see this in his interaction with David. Once, once and for all, maybe in the culmination of all the covenants before it build to this moment of, of God kind of playing his cards. Showing his hand the most clearly to David. And this declaration of the covenant to David uh, as king over Israel is probably the most grace-centric of all the proclamations of the covenant of grace that uh, preceded it. It's like God saying, if you've ever wondered whether or not I'm moving towards you in grace, see that I have established my kingdom through the king and the people of Israel for eternity. Forever. It's God giving David and the people of Israel the certainty that they were looking for in their uncertain times. And he's given it to us too. So this morning, um, that's going to be the heart of what we're looking at. Uh, that his certainty uh, uh, gives us, uh, from his covenant of grace, gives us that which we're looking for in all of our life. And it's, uh, we're going to see three areas that it gives us the certainty. One, um, it gives us certainty in our failures. Uh, it gives us uh, certainty in his character. And uh, it gives us his promise of eternal certainty. So first, certainty in our failures. Uh, if you're with us for the first time this morning, here's a bit of a refresher of where we are. The first uh, three weeks or so, we looked at God's covenant. Uh, we didn't even get out of Genesis 12 or 15. Uh, we looked at uh, Adam, Noah, and Abraham. And then last week, Jim reminded us of God's people being delivered through slavery in Egypt and God reaffirming his covenant of grace with them through the law, with Moses. And just as a reminder, the law was not given to Israel uh, so that they can achieve God's love or his grace, but because they already had it. Uh, and it was so Israel knew who this God was that they were in relationship with. His personality taught them what it meant to love and follow him. But now, in the story of God's people, we're in 2 Samuel. So Israel had finally entered the promised land, and they're making a transition. So they were in a time of uncertainty too. They're making this transition from a nomadic, wandering tribe to a nation state. With a place, with a home, a land, a nation. And actually, God had promised this to Abraham. 
This was something that he had promised to him many, many years and chapters before. A land that would be their own. A nation that would be theirs. But here's where Israel failed. When they finally got to this nation, when they finally got to this land, they decided they wanted a king. And uh, if we frame this in the way that we frame this whole kind of series, this was like extremely problematic. Because as we mentioned at the beginning, God was supposed to be their king. He was the suzerain in the suzerain vassal covenant. He was the powerful party. So when Israel asked for a king, it's a major, major failure. Because man was uh, saying, in essentially, he, they were saying to God, I want to be who you are. You say you're the king in this relationship? No, 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 no. We want a king. We want to become the powerful party in this relationship. What you've planned for us, we don't want anymore. What you provide, we don't want. And this is just another transgression and act of unfaithfulness by God's people. But it might have been the most slap in the face to say, we don't want you to be our king. We want to be king. So God, in his goodness and his grace, and we're going to get more into this later, allows this to happen. He anoints David as king over Israel after Saul's reign was a disaster. And then verse 7 says this. He says, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. See, David wanted to build the presence of God, a temple, a huge house. He said, look, I live in this nice house. And why is God in this small ark in a tent? David said, God has done so much for me. He's given us this land. He's made us a great nation. Now let's do something for him. And this seems natural. But really, it's a failure. This was a prideful act on David's part. David trying to make his plan, his will, his desire for God to become a reality. Often in ancient Near Eastern times, uh, uh, conquering kings would build temples for the gods. To say, look, I conquered, the God is on my side, I'm going to build them a house. To show all of these people how powerful I am. And this is what David was doing. And God responds accordingly, he says this, Go and tell my servant David, speaking to Nathan, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I ever speak a word with any of them? Why have you not built me a house? God is saying, I've been with you this whole time. I've never left you. You don't have to make a big show out of this. I've never asked you to make a home for me. My home has always been with you. Just as I was with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, so too have I been with you. Don't you see, David, my grace is enough. My presence is enough. You don't have to build me a house. I don't know about you, but I think this is why this story is so helpful for me. I feel I often do what Israel's doing here. I try to replace God with myself. Often I think that my plan is the right one. I know what's best for me and my family. That my will and my way is correct. And in doing so, we do the same thing. We, I place myself as king of the covenant. 
rather than God. But what I love about the story is that though we are unfaithful, he's, he's never unfaithful to us. He works with us in the midst of that, actually. He actually gets into the mud and the mire with us. And then he brings about his plan. Because that's what's so cool about this story is that God didn't shut them down when they asked for a king. Even though it was a failure and a slap in his face, he actually brought their plan into his. God didn't only just allow it to happen, he co-opted it and made it an integral part of his covenant with them. He made the king the covenant representative for Israel, even though that had never been part of the covenant before. Mike Williams puts it this way. He says, in the story of Israel's king, we witness grace indeed. A rebellious people rejects the Lord's direct rule, asking for a king like all the other nations. And Yahweh responds by giving them the king they demand. But one with an innovative job description that reserves sovereignty for God alone, yet establishes Israel's king as covenant representative and premier pointer to the Messiah. In other words, God enfolds Israel's demand into his sovereign purpose and transforms it into something that someday will exceed their wildest dreams. Wow. If our main, if our kind of thesis today is that God gives us certainty, I think we can be certain of two things because of this. One, we're going to fail like Israel did, and that's going to make us uncertain about a lot of things. But two, God is still going to move towards us in grace. So hear that again. We can be certain that we're going to fail and that it's going to lead us to uncertainty because failure always leads to uncertainty. But God is going to move towards us in grace. One thing that I, I, I want to say to all of us, and it's important for us, I think, to hold on to, is that God leaves space for our plans. We see that in Israel. E- even though their plan was the wrong one, He left space for it. You're not some automaton that just blindly goes about and does the will of God. God gives you agency to act in the world, to make plans, to have hopes and dreams. This is part of what it means to be the human agent and the relationship with God. We can have plans. We can hope for things. There's space for that. But it also means that there's space for our failure Our failures are not the end of our relationship with God because that would imply we have more power to fail than God has power to give grace. You don't have more power to fail than God has power to give grace. And where our failures make us feel uncertain, God's grace gives us the certainty that we are desperate for. Um... My wife and I have been, uh, she, she was nine months pregnant as of two weeks ago. Our, our baby's here, which is really fun. Um, but one of the ways that we got through the last month of pregnancy is we've been binge-watching Gilmore Girls, right? And um, great show. And uh, Rory Gilmore always wanted to go to Yale, right? That was like her plan. She wanted to be a journalist. She wanted to go to Yale. She goes to Yale. It's amazing. Uh, and then uh, two years in, she gets an internship at her boyfriend's dad's paper, right? And... He doesn't like her, doesn't think she's good enough for a son. And so he tells her, you don't have what it takes to be a journalist. He says, this thing you've been working towards forever, you don't have what it takes, you're not good enough. And in that failure, Rory, this is, I can't believe I'm doing this as an illustration. 
Rory quits Yale. She says, I'm done. She says, obviously, I can't continue becoming a journalist one day because this guy said that I'm not good enough. That failure made her so uncertain, this thing that she had built her whole life to, she just quit. And man, I feel like I can really, really resonate with that. I feel like um, the past two years, I think that I have feel like I have failed more than any time in my life as a dad. This being a father thing, I wasn't ready for it. And I don't really know what I'm doing. And we just had this beautiful, wonderful boy born two weeks ago. And man, in failing as a father with him, Jack, and with Lila, makes me feel uncertain about everything. You know, Lila had some health scares when she was a couple weeks old. And me not being able to heal her, which sounds so crazy, made me feel like a failure. Me, when, uh, you know, our daycare teacher told us that she bit someone like six months ago. It makes me feel like a failure. You know, when uh, she tries to climb off of her changing table and I don't catch her quick enough and she falls and hurts herself, I feel like a failure. I've never felt more like a failure than I have these past two and a half years. And it's made me feel so uncertain in my life and who I am. Am I able to do this thing? Am I good enough? I don't know if it's that for you. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your relationships. There's one thing that I need in the midst of that feeling like a failure that's leading me to uncertainty is God's grace. Is to remind me that Lyle and Jack are going to be okay. That yes, I've got a very um, powerful ability to hurt them. But God's grace has way more power to shape and love them than my ever ability to hurt them is. That is where my certainty comes from. It's not on my ability as a dad. It's not on my ability as, um, you know, being able to make sure they bring home the right guy or girl one day. But it's on God's grace for them and his deep love for them. What about you? Where is your failures leading you to be uncertain about things? And where can God's grace meet you in the midst of that? Maybe you're in that place now. And maybe you need to be reminded of this. We don't need, at least at first, a fix for our failures. We need to rely on the certainty of God's grace in the midst of our failures. That is where our hope is. So where are you believing that lie that your failure defines you more than God's grace? And where can you begin to believe the truth of the gospel that God can and does redeem your failures and your failed plans for his good and perfect plan? Look to that for your certainty. And this leads us to our second point. Um, We've seen that God's covenant of grace gives us uh, certainty for all our life. And we must uh, remember that uh, certainty in our failures. And now we're going to see we must recognize that certainty uh, in his character. Some of the most uh, uncertainty in, in our lives come from our relationships, right? What's my standing in this group of people? Uh, what's uh, my relationship with my family is fraught? My marriage is falling apart. Relationships can feel like uncertain things. And I think that's what gives me hope when I look at these covenants. Because uh, when we trace these covenants through scripture, we see something. We see that if there's something that 
we can be certain of in our relationships, the one person we can be certain of is our relationship with God. Who is the same God that he has said since all the way back to creation. His character is the same that we see with Adam that it is with us through Jesus. And we see this with David. um, Who despite their failure and their fraught plans, um, he granted them a king and then moves towards David in grace. He says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of the host, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. He says, look, remember what I did for you. Look how I provided for you. Like like I never left Adam when he ate the fruit. Look how I haven't left you. (coughs) Excuse me. Like I did for Noah when I saved him and his family from the flood. And the restoration of the world, like I did for Moses when I rescued Israel from slavery and then gave them the gift of the law so that they could follow me. I too have taken you from the pasture and I made you king over the people. I've been with you like I was with your forefathers. I've saved you from your enemies just as I saved them. This is a God, he's saying. I am a God who redeems, restores, provides, and protects. And I am with you. And he says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is a verbatim repetition of what he told Abraham in Genesis 12. He told Abraham, I will make your name great so that you can be a blessing to the people. And he's bringing that and he's saying, what I said of Abraham is also true of you, David. I will make your name great. The youngest of the sons of Jesse, a shepherd. And even more than that, just as with Abraham, when the pot and the torch passed through the remains of the animal, a promise that God gave them a land, a home, we we see the fulfillment of it here. He says, I will make and appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I'll give you rest. Don't you see all of these covenants God is building on? He's, he's bringing them all together. And he's saying, David, this is the same covenant that I'm entering with you. This amount of consistency in God uh, and who moves towards his people in grace is so freeing for me. It gives me such hope that the God that I see in Scripture is the same God who covenants with me. And what is this character of this God? Uh, When God entered into uh, the covenant with Moses, he did something very interesting. During that covenant ceremony, he described himself in this very beautiful way. And I want to put it on the screen for you guys. This is what he said. He says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God describing his character to his covenant people in the covenant ceremony itself. And the first thing he says is that he's a merciful and gracious God. At the heart of who our God is, is mercy and grace in his own words. This is what bothers me so much when people uh, talk about the Old Testament. God was only about law and judgment. 
and the New Testament God is about love and grace. It's not true. God moves towards Moses in covenant relationship in mercy and grace. He says it himself. That means he moves towards us first in mercy and in grace. And as he is slow to anger with Moses, he too is slow to anger with you. And just as he is steadfast in his hesed love, that, that's that word hesed, means covenant faithfulness for, for, for thousands. Think about this. The emotional climax, y'all ready? The emotional climax of a 10-year run of over 20 movies culminated in Iron Man telling his daughter that he loved her 3,000, right? He says, I love you 3,000. And God told Moses that thousands of years ago when he said that he was steadfast in keeping his love for thousands. Iron Man stole that idea, quoted the God of the Old Testament. The, I'm telling you, the emotional climax of a 10-year run is an Old Testament quote about the Old Testament God who is our God today. That he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. I love that picture that even in death, death on a cross, God himself looks at me and he looks at you and he says, I'm steadfast in my love for thousands. And he is a just God who, who no means clears the guilty, reminding us that our sin has real ramifications and, and consequences and that it's generational and that repentance and regular confession of it is a foundational part of what it means to be the people of God. You see, the God who covenanted with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, Moses, and now David is the same God through Jesus who covenants with us. We can be certain in all of our uncertainty in our relationships in our life that that God, his character, is the same for us that it was for these covenant people. And that gives us such hope and grounding in our life. And it brings us to our final point. So we've seen that um, it is God's covenant grace that gives us this certainty. Uh, we must re- uh, remember it in our failures, recognize it in his character, and finally we're see that we must rely on it uh, for uh, eternity and his eternal promises. You know, uh, a lot of commentators will take this text and, and say it's the most um, blatant kind of proof text in the Old Testament that God uh, justifies us by grace through faith. And it's because the Davidic covenant is perhaps one of the most messianic and messiah-centric texts in the Old Testament. And we've established that each covenant is built on grace, right? They're always looking forward to the coming Messiah who would pay for the sins of the world, just as we're always looking back to that same Messiah. But it's maybe here that we see God at his most gracious. Because what we've seen every week is that God... uh, in stating the covenant would have stipulations, right? There's blessings and cursings that come. There's an idea that there's a two parties in a relationship, each having actions and moving towards each other in certain ways. There's stipulations in the covenant. But remember how we built this house, right? Um, or sorry, we built, started this, this sermon. David wanted to build God a house, right? God said he doesn't need a house. No, our God doesn't need us to build a house for him. Because our God promises instead to build David a house. The God of the covenant says this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did you hear any stipulations in that? Was there anything David had to do in that? He said, you want to build me a house? No, I will build you a kingdom. You want to honor me? No, I will establish your name forever. You want to do something for me? See all that I will do for you. There's nothing you can do to gain that love, that relationship I hold you to no stipulations like the covenants before. It is solely on my grace and character that I've decided to bring you salvation. To give you certainty for all of eternity. The house you would build for me is temporary. But the kingdom I'm bringing is eternal. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The whole point of of these sermons is that there's one covenant of grace. They build on each other. That means that the Mosaic Covenant still applied to David. He knew that. Um, it's, he talks in the Psalms about delighting in the law. It's his light in the darkness, his path. And, uh, and the stipulations of the covenant still applied to David. He knew that. But God purposely decided to not state them here. And I think that's instructive for us. Because maybe it was God once and for all saying this. I know that you will never be able to hold up your side of the deal. I know you'll never be able to hold up your side of the covenant. I know that your sin will keep you from ever being faithful to me. But that's okay. Because I'm a God of grace. That's who I am. And because of that, I will come down and I will hold your end of the covenant for you. Even if I have to walk among you, even when I do and you're faithless to me, then you will turn your back on me. You actually... Deliver me to my death on the cross. I will still uphold your end of the covenant. I will pay your penalty for your sins because you never could. And it is in that death that we find life. You see, each of us, as God's people, can have certainty of God's eternal promise for us. And you know why that is? Because it wasn't us that held our side of the covenant up. It was Jesus. Only God could could fulfill the covenant we were always supposed to be able to fill because of our sinfulness. And it was only God that could pay the penalty of our faithlessness. Your salvation, your eternal certainty has never been in your hands. It's in God's. And as we have seen time and time again every single week, if there's one thing we can rely on, one thing that we can be certain of, is that the God of the universe will hold up his end of the bargain, his end of the relationship, and he will hold up your end as well. And we can take great comfort in that. That is certainty for life. Um, I've told you guys about um, my senior year. I I played travel ball that spring, and um, my club coach became... My high school coach that year. So that guy that I didn't like was replaced. And I had, uh, I knew where I stood with him, right? I knew that he liked me. I knew that um, I was certain of my ability playing under him. And that senior year of high school ball was one of my favorites ever. I came back, I played, 
Um, and man, playing for him felt like it was a gift to me. And here's my hope for each of you, is that as we walk through this life and all the uncertainty that it brings about what's next, what's going on right now, or things that have happened in the past, that we can be certain that we have a God is who is who he says he is, that moves towards us, not just us, but all of redemptive history in grace and in love. And when we feel unlovable, unforgivable, unprovided for, and uncertain, we can rest on and find hope in him. Amen.